If you sell by referral, relationship building, and network marketing, pick a time and let's talk about podcasting. You might be surprised. When done correctly, all you have to do is have the conversations. Simply dial 239-351-5575 and ask for Tom. That's 239-351-5575 or go to lawfirmpodcasts.com to schedule a call. I had the good fortune of, of linking up with a uh, librarian who was also a law school graduate at the University of Minnesota, and he was able to get the trial transcript, and it's now online at their website. I downloaded it. It's 90 volumes. Uh, oh took a long time just Took a long time just to download it. How long was and the I trial? Said, 12 weeks. Okay. Uh, and, and so once I knew I had the transcript, then I said to myself, I'm going to know what happened at this trial. I had enough trials of my own. I presided over enough trials. I can read a transcript and I can tell you what happened. And so that's what I did. I read the transcript. And as you've read the book, you know that I did my best to, you know, bring the reader into the trial and understand, you know, the, the, the living hell Darrow and his wife Ruby were going through, uh, you know, for, for a very long period of time where they were pinned down in Los Angeles. Welcome to the NJ Criminal Podcast. Welcome back to New Jersey Criminal Podcast. Here with us today is retired judge and author Nelson Johnson. Judge Johnson practiced law for 31 years before being appointed to the New Jersey Superior Court, where he thereafter presided over more than 250 civil jury trials. He is recently best known for his New York Times bestseller and HBO crime drama TV series, Boardwalk Empire, and in 2021 released his most recent novel, Darrow's Nightmare. Judge, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the nice introduction. Darrow's Nightmare is a true history. It's not a novel. Well, and and that's exactly right. And I I read it and it's a fascinating story. Um, Before we get into the the details of, of that book, um, I really am curious, and, and again, you you practiced law for 31 years. You um, were appointed to the New Jersey Superior Court, uh, I think in 2006, retiring from Correct. the bench in 2018. And, um, you know, we, we talked about this before we started recording. I'm very interested in what led you to start writing um, and also how, uh, separately from that, or connected to that, I guess, is how a an attorney's career can evolve, right? The practice of law, uh, presiding as a as a New Jersey Superior Court judge, and now uh, a a an author uh, who has great success. So I'm I'm curious, what led you to start writing? I've always been interested in writing, uh, but what motivated me to write Boardwalk Empire was my representation of the Atlantic City Planning Board in the early 1980s. And by early, I mean, you know, 1980, 81, 82, when Atlantic City was sort of like the Wild West in terms of land development. And I went into City Hall knowing that it was corrupt, uh, but I didn't have a feel for just how dysfunctional it was. And once I, you know, understood, wow, we have a problem here. Uh, 
I decided that I needed to learn more. I went to the library, had some good people who helped me with a bunch of books that I read. And when I got through my research, so to speak, I realized that nobody had really ever told the complete history of Atlantic City. So uh, I'd like to try to explain things that nobody else has really done a lot of work with. And the history of Atlantic City was one of those things. Yeah. And, and your sequel, The North Side, African-Americans and the Creation of Atlantic City, was published in 2010. Uh, another fascinating uh, history uh, following the Boardwalk Empire. So, and I think that the, you know, what you said a couple minutes ago, it's true research, which is something that uh, is innate to many lawyers, good lawyers. You, you are correct. Uh, a, a good lawyer, when doing research, wants to be able to frame the issue in the historical context. And I don't mean pure history, but I mean, you know, how things evolved in the, in the common law and how the judiciary got to where it is on an opinion that you're relying upon. So research is second nature to lawyers. Uh, but I've always been a bookworm. I've always loved libraries. And so, you know, when I got into my craziness with the uh, Atlantic City Planning Board and what was going on in City Hall, I gravitated towards the library because I figured there's got to be some history books here that could help me. There were, but nobody had ever written a complete history from the coming of the train up to the present time. So I saw that and I said, wow, that's an opportunity for me. And with the North side, I saw the same thing, which is nobody's talked about the indispensable role of African-Americans and the creation of Atlantic City. If you remove them, Atlantic City never comes to be. I don't know what it is, but, but it doesn't come to be. And so I saw immediately that I had two books, but I knew I had to write Boardwalk Empire first because I knew that had a much better chance of commercial success, which fortunately it did. Uh, and then, you know, my publisher was happy to also publish The North Side, and that's had a lot of success. And, and I've had a lot of fun with both books. There is a difference, though, between setting forth facts in a brief, right, which is how most lawyers spend their, their, their daytime job writing briefs that are very factual, and instead writing uh, an, a historical piece of work that is um, interesting and readable to non-lawyers, right? So, you know, you, you, you were able to, in all of your books, really tell the story uh, and keep it all factually correct. And that's a very difficult thing to do. Well, what 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 lawyers and historians both have to do is to try to engage the reader with an interesting story. Now, I recognize that sometime in writing a brief, that's more difficult. I'm not going to tell you it isn't. But I will say to you, if you know your facts well enough, and if you can distill them down to the very essence, then you ought to be able to come up with like an introductory or a preliminary statement that that's, you know, 250, 300 words. Uh, and you, and that's like your springboard to tell their, tell your story and your statement of facts. Uh, mm -hmm. and so you know, it's, it really is about organizing your thoughts and trying to, you know, capture what I call the reader's eye when you're, when you're writing. Uh, and so, you know, what an historian does and what a lawyer does, they're, they're pretty comparable only, you know, it, 
And what I'm doing is writing books, it's long form storytelling. Whereas lawyers, it's short form storytelling, but it's still trying to engage the reader's mind through telling a story. Someone told me when I was a young trial attorney, if you, when you're preparing for trial, you're, you're living the file. Um, it seems to me what you're saying is when you're researching uh, for uh, writing the type of, of, of books that you've written, you're really living the story. More so than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. I, I, lived, I lived Darrow's nightmare for years. And I was on the bench when I started doing my research and I would get up very early in the morning and in the initial research after I understood the whole construct, uh, so to speak, of the, of the 12 week trial. And then I had to read the 8000 page trial transcript. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm a pretty disciplined person. So I would get up every morning and from around 4.30. I would shower the night before. From around 4.30 to 6.30, I would read and take notes. Then I'd get changed and go to the courthouse. Right, right. <laughs> what made you choose this topic? How did you uh, get turned on to this? Because this is, you know, just for our listeners, obviously, Clarence Darrow, uh, attorney for the damned, as he was known, um, was was a one of the best known criminal defense attorneys in history uh, but you focus on a two-year period in his life 1911 to 1913 uh, which is a story that that many may not have heard or or has never really has never been told before right but what made you pick this this topic i always wanted to be a lawyer uh from the youngest of ages and my mother introduced me to the first so to speak, authorized biography, which is Irving Stone's book. Uh, I read that like when I was 12 or 13. So I knew from having read that book that Darrow had been charged with a crime himself earlier in his career. He wasn't a young lawyer, but it was it was like midway in his career. He gets charged with this very serious crime of attempting to bribe a juror. And I knew that. And so over the years, I probably I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in my writing studio and I'm looking around at my library and I probably read about, about 15 books on Clarence Darrow. And only one of them really drilled down on the uh, trial for, for attempting to bribe a juror. And that book was infuriating because the author told you at the very beginning that he thought Darrow was guilty. Uh, and he proceeded to tell you about the trial by citing two newspaper articles. Well, I knew then, right then, that, you know, this is crazy. There were, there were 12 newspapers in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Everybody had their own angle on this thing. And so, long, very long story told short, I had the good fortune of, of linking up with a uh, librarian who was also a law school graduate at the University of Minnesota and he was able to get the trial transcript and it's now online at their website i downloaded it it's 90 volumes uh oh took a long time just took a long time just to download it how long was and the I trial 12 weeks okay uh and and so once i knew i had the transcript then i said to myself I'm going to know what happened at this trial. I had enough trials of my own. I presided over enough trials. I can read a transcript and I can tell you what happened. Uh, 
And so that's what I did. I read the transcript. And as you've read the book, you know that I did my best to, you know, bring the reader into the trial and understand, you know, the, 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 the living hell Darrow and his wife Ruby were going through, uh, you know, for, for a very long period of time where they were pinned down in Los Angeles. What was the, the most interesting takeaway, so to speak, after having read the actual transcript, right? The primary, the primary source, which is what a, any good historian would tell you you have to do. You are correct. The primary source and can't get more primary for this than right. that. Right. Uh, the genius of Earl Rogers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was an extraordinary extraordinarily capable attorney he had complete control of the courtroom um and and he did it he did it in a way that uh infuriated his adversaries and charmed the judge i mean he was damn good it it was it was very exciting reading him performing right what did you think of darrow giving being being permitted to give the closing argument though no, Darrow, Darrow gave one of two closing arguments. Rogers mm-hmm. gave a closing argument too. Okay. Uh, there were there were to- there were a total of four closing arguments. Why the judge permitted that many, I don't know. Two for the two for the prosecution, two for the defense. Uh, Darrow's argument was was pretty tough. He really went after his adversary, uh, Joe Ford. Uh, Rogers uh, Rogers uh, closing argument. Was almost an introduction of Darrow, you know, trying to set the set the stage. Fredericks, who was the district attorney, the man was a fool, and he made a fool of himself during his closing argument. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Joe Ford did a pretty pretty decent job in terms of touching the bases, but he was so mean spirited that it's hard to it's hard to think that the jurors really were impressed with him because he was just hated Darrow, and Darrow Darrow disliked him. You know, there, there was a lot of strong feelings got erupted over over you know, almost a four-month, you know, three-month period. Obviously, rules of evidence have changed quite a bit since that trial. As a as a retired judge, were there, were there things that, uh, as you're reading a transcript, you're thinking, oh, this would never happen today? And the reason I ask is because I had done a series earlier this summer on the Lindbergh trial and was looking at it from the vantage point of of how the trial would have been different today. Uh, under our rules of evidence. That was a, a, a different angle I was taking, but I was just curious as I'm sitting here listening to you, you know, discuss getting up 4.30 in the morning to read this this long transcript, if if there were things that stood out to you as being, oh my gosh, that's so different than, than how, how things are now. Yes. Uh, J- Judge Hutton, who presided over the trial, was clearly a gentleman. He was a hard worker. The trial, the trial went on most weeks, six days a week, uh, and you could tell on Monday morning that you know things, motions, and issues that had to be addressed. You tell, you can tell he had worked Sunday to be ready for Monday. So I'm not challenging his, you know, industriousness, but he let things happen that could never happen today. It would would have been a basis for a mistrial. Uh, one example would be the ability of one of the prosecution witnesses to testify from a stenographic record of a conversation between the witness and Darrow 
without showing it, <laughs> showing it to the defense. Yeah. And, and, and Rogers went crazy, you know, trying to, trying to get the judge to let him see it. And the judge wouldn't let him. And as each time I'm reading the judge saying, you can't have it, I'm saying, you know, this is a mistrial or it's going to get, you know, if he's convicted, it's going to get, it's going to get reversed and remanded. Uh, I mean, it was, it was really God awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but fortunately, Dara was acquitted, so so it didn't really make much difference. But it really stood out to me. It was extremely frustrating reading it. As you mentioned, this was um, not not at the end of his career, right? Dara went on to continue practicing law. Is that correct? Oh yes, he went. Come on, his his most famous trials came after that. Uh, you had Leopold and Loeb, where he represented the two wealthy teenagers, both of whom were very bright, who committed a murder to see if they could commit the perfect crime. He represented them, and, and that was the basis for a movie. Uh, he, he represented uh, the school teacher Scopes, in Tennessee, uh, and that turned out to be the basis for a movie, with, which was uh, Inherit the Winds, which is an amazing movie, a fun movie for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Uh, he did he did trials representing people who were charged with communism, but very early, you know, in the in the in the uh, 20th century. Uh, he he represented a gentleman in Hawaii, which the trial got a lot of sensational headlines. It was a revenge murder. Uh, and so there was a fair number of trials that he did after this case uh, that he never would have done had he been convicted. Had he, had he been convicted, Dyer would have been no more than a footnote in the history of the American labor movement because he was labor's lawyer for about a 12, 13 year period. Uh, but fortunately, because of the expertise of Earl Rogers, he was acquitted. Uh, and he went on to have you know, a pretty famous, pretty famous career. I couldn't help but wonder uh, if if this allegation had uh, been made against a, a a current attorney, and this is you know I'm focusing on New Jersey uh, in my podcast, but New Jersey has certainly very strict ethics ethical rules. Um, whether or not he still would have faced uh, potential disbarment um, for you know the allegation being that um, he vis a vis his investigator bribed to jurors um well see the the we're never going to know the complete truth the investigator was not hired by darrow it was the investigator was hired by other people before darrow even got in town Mm -hmm. and the investigator was friends with people who were closely connected with Harrison Gray Otis, the owner of the New York Times, the person most affected by the crime that the McNamara brothers had had committed, which brought Darrow to Los Angeles to represent the McNamara brothers. They, they were responsible for a, an explosion that blew up the LA Times and killed 20 people, which still remains the worst act of labor terrorism in American history. And Harrison Gray Otis wanted revenge. And when the judge consented to a plea bargain agreement that permitted the McNamara brothers to go to jail rather than to be hung, then I really think that's what, you know, ignited uh, Harrison Gray Otis. And I think he had a hand in it. And I think that, you know, Bert Franklin, the witness against Darrow, um, his testimony was terrible. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he, could, he gave the prosecution when he was on direct examination, he gave the prosecutor trouble. Uh, and then when he was cross-examined by Earl Rogers, it, he, he just looked like a liar. Let's just put it that way. He sounded like a liar. You know, he, hearing you, it's so evident to me um, that you, you are uh, an expert in everything that occurred because of how deeply you researched this topic and all of your topics and that um, I think that it's it's so important to recognize that um, you know sometimes you know tr- truth is tra- stranger than fiction right but the, the these true yes. stories these historical stories it's so important to um, not overlook the details um, but that that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of work um, yeah, it does. But for me, it's see, for me. My writing is like a time sponge, and mm-hmm. I and I, I I have to actually take my, you know, the the alarm on my you know, the timer on my on my clock, my watch, my phone, and I have to set it for an hour to remind myself to get up and move around, and then go back to my research or go back to my writing because I I get that absorbed in it, which is which really is a treat to tell you the truth. Yeah. It's, it's really not work. It's it's fun. It sounds like it's a true love of yours. Yeah, it is. It is. I, 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 I could be doing other things, but this is really what I want to do most. And, and it's, provide, it's such a service to uh, just to the, to history, um, this, this type of research. You also wrote a book in 2014. I just wanted to ask you about it. Uh, Battleground, New Jersey, Vanderbilt, Hague, and, and their fight for justice. Just tell us a little bit about what that was about. That's, that's a history of the prelude to New Jersey's 1947 Constitution. Uh, Prior to our adoption of the 47 Constitution, our judiciary was a mess. We had 17 different courts with 17 different sets of rules. Uh, The rules were adopted by the legislature. Uh, They were never changed after they were adopted. And so, and some of the judges were, you know, political officers. Some of them ran for office to be a judge. Some of them were judges and were involved in politics. Uh, New Jersey's system was corrupt. And so to get a fair shake, you had to have a lawyer that was politically connected, or you had to be politically connected yourself if you became a party to a lawsuit. And that Arthur Vanderbilt has always been one of my heroes. Uh, but I, I knew that somebody needed to tell the story of what, you know, what went on and what it was, was a, was a, was really the constitution's amendment got caught up in a religious war, which was a fight between the Irish Catholics in Hudson County, uh, and the Protestant Republicans in Essex County. And it, as much as Vanderbilt tried, uh, he could not even get a question on the ballot. And then when they finally did, it was defeated. And it took a young governor from Haddonfield. Uh, his name is escaping me right now, but I will remember it, uh, to, who became governor. And he negotiated the deal with Frank Haig, who was boss of Hudson County in Jersey City. Uh, Driscoll was the, was the name of the governor mm-hmm. from Haddonfield. So it's a it's a it's a very involved story, but it's an important story if you want to understand New Jersey's court system. Now that wasn't the title I chose. I reached out to Rutgers 
and they said they wanted to publish the book, but they, because it's an academic press, they wouldn't go for my title. My title was Street Fight. Uh, which I like is, that which title. Is, oh, I do too. I do too. And and that was the that was the title that I wanted for Battleground New Jersey. But Rucker's mindset was this is an academic press. That title is really not you know becoming of something that you know we want to publish. Uh, and so they had final say on the title, and I didn't. But I still had the I had the let's say the experience of the academic rigor. Of working with a with a university press, which believe me, it's quite rigorous mm-hmm. in terms of the demands that they make for documenting things and moving forward and writing and rewriting and rewriting, which is okay. You know, yeah. that's what writing is. It's rewriting. But the book was much fun, but the probably one of the takeaways was that I found out that Arthur Vanderbilt had clay feet. And what I mean by that is um in doing my research at uh, Westland University up in Connecticut, which is where all his personal files are. Uh, I came across a a collection of of letters and correspondence between Vanderbilt uh, and a gentleman by the name of David Dayton McKean, who was a former professor at Princeton and then had moved on to Dartmouth. And McKean authored a book entitled The Boss. The Hague Machine in Action, and it, and it really was a political hit job. And when and I read the book for the first time when I was like my sophomore, junior year in, in college at St. John's, and I didn't read the whole book, read portions, but you know, the, the because it's still looked at as a as a book that is a fine explanation of how you know old style political machines worked. And then I reread portions of the book when I wrote Battleground New Jersey because Nucky Johnson had had a relationship with Frank Haig. One was a Democrat, the other one was a Republican, but the two of them scratched each other's back and made things happen and benefited one another. And now I'm reading the book again in, in connection with Frank Haig and Arthur Vanderbilt. And lo and behold, I spent a long weekend at Westland University and I'm going through Vanderbilt's files and I come across what's known as box 96. And then it is correspondence between the author of the boss, David Dayton McKean and Arthur Vanderbilt. And then when you read, when you read that correspondence, there's only one takeaway, which is that Arthur Vanderbilt was a co-author who, you know, kept his name from being part of the, he rewrote entire chapters. Uh, you know, he, he really had a strong hatred for Frank Haig uh, and did everything he could to do a political hit job on him. And I'm not defending Frank Haig, but you got to keep in mind, Frank Haig had a sixth grade education. Uh, his family and all of his contemporaries had been dumped on by the Protestants. And so he viewed politics as a religious war. Uh, and so Frank Haig did what he did to you know, overcome uh, discrimination, you know, by Protestants, uh, Republican wasps. And uh, he had his way for a very long time in New Jersey politics. And again, it took took Alfred Driscoll, uh, who was a very savvy, young, capable uh, lawyer from Haddonfield, who became governor as a Republican. And he was the one who was able to make a deal with Haig so that Haig would stop blocking um, any sort of efforts to reform the Constitution, because 
in Jersey City, the vote was whatever Frank Hague wanted the vote to be. And so, you know, you could have you could have a gubernatorial contest and if, and if Frank Hague, you know, would hold out Hudson County's vote until the very end to see how much the Democratic candidate needed, he'd come up with that vote. Uh, so, he, you know, he was, was a very corrupt politician, but also someone who felt that he had been wronged terribly by the Republicans. And so he waged quite a war. Uh, that is fascinating. Is, fascinating. I, that sounds like that could be an HBO miniseries. <laughs> uh, but, well, Terry, Win- Terry Winter was interested in it, but he didn't do anything with it. I mean, he, he read it, he liked it, and he said, God, awful title now. <laughs> <laughs> you said it wasn't, my said, t- Terry, wasn't what I wanted. I, I said, Terry, Terry, it wasn't my choice. And I told him the title. He said, oh, that would have been such a better title. So I said, well, you could still do something with it, with that title. And, and he just, you know, I never, he's, he's very involved in those things that I speak to him every now and then. And he's, he's, you know, he's moved on from that. Obviously he's done a lot of things, uh, but yeah, you know, it, it, that was a fun book to write. And, and the revelation that, that I experienced in Connecticut sitting in a library, my hero, Arthur Vanderbilt, had clay feet. He was he was involved in skullduggery, you know, behind the back of everybody and got away with it. I was the one that revealed it. I, I called his grandson, you know, when you know, when I came across this and then I got a groan on the other side of the phone because the grandson knew. Jeez, <laughs> oh, that's unbelievable. I'm fascinated in in hearing about your your really boots on the ground in terms of researching. I mean, this you is not, the, yeah, I mean, that, and that's, I think that's a really important takeaway is the, um, the understanding that that is what is needed. You never would have found, was it, would you say box 96, 97? You never would have found that if you hadn't taken a ride up the road, right? You, you are correct. Uh, but I, but see, but I, I, I knew that there was a, big collection of Vanderbilt stuff in Westland. He had saved everything during the course of his career. I mean, this was a guy that knew he was making a, a name in history. Uh, he didn't know how big a name, but but he knew he was, he was making a name. And so he saved everything. And then when I realized where it was, I said, well, I need to, I need to look at this. You know, so I, I spent a Friday, Saturday, Sunday and, and did a deep, deep dive and then had to go back another time after that because there were some things I needed to copy and people at the library were very helpful. People at the Jersey City Library were very helpful. The people at the at the Newark uh, City Library were very helpful. Uh, and Librarians so those are, the, are unsung heroes. Yes, they are. Yes, I, I, I have told many authors, some of whom wind up writing, you know, newspaper articles, some of whom wind up writing, you know, short stories or whatever. I said, never be afraid to ask a librarian for help because they'll give it to you. Mm-hmm. It's the rarest. I haven't come across a librarian yet who was who was uncooperative or difficult. Uh, they, they might sometimes be apologetic saying, gee, I wish I could help you, but I don't think we got anything here. But most of them, if you go to the right library and and you have reason to believe that something that you're looking for is there most of them will really work hard to try to find it for you i mean i had that experience with boardwalk empire i could the the people in atlantic city library could not have been more helpful on on both books 
That's great to uh, know. So, That's great to know. It's yeah. a plug for the uh, for the for the local libraries and and those librarians that that day after day help people. Um, you know, for everything yes. from a very small report to a a an important uh, piece of work like those that you have you have written. Well, you, you are correct. Librarians are a treasure because I've yet to come across one that, you know, was difficult with me. And, you know, they all got their own personalities, but mm -hmm. none of them was like, you know, eh, no, I can't be bothered or no, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know where that is or no, you know, mm -hmm. I don't think we have that. It was like, you know, let's look, let's see what we can find. They, you know, they're all very helpful. They really are. I guess the question is how you know as a, as an author, as a writer, when your research is complete. That's got to be a difficult, ooh, right? That's got to be a difficult, ooh, uh, is it ooh. ever, I guess? Y yes, yes. Um, it, you see, I went, went, when I finished Boardwalk Empire, I knew my research wasn't complete because I knew I had to write another book on the north side. And I had much difficulty, you know, but I, I, my publisher and, and, a, and a couple, couple, uh, a couple critics, you know, have said, oh, well, it took them, you know, 15 years to write the book. No, it didn't take me 15 years to write the mm -hmm. book, but it did take me a long period of time to figure out what the hell am I going to do with chapter three, uh, which I thought had to be a condensed history of the black experience, knowing or hoping that there would be a second book that came out of it, which which there did. And mm -hmm. so I would have occasions where in complete frustration with the story that I was trying to tell about the black community in a single chapter, where I'd put the book down and just, you know, cuss myself out and then I'd get frustrated mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, not scream, but, you know, I guess mm -hmm. get infuriated with my, why can't you do this? And so after taking, walking away from the book for about a six month period, I went back to chapter three um, and I, I really did work at taking the black experience and try to distilling it all into one chapter of like around, I think I gave myself a word, I write with a word budget on everything. I think I gave myself a word budget of like 5,000 words. And I then went to two people, uh, one, retired judge james jackson he and i have been he and i practiced law together we've been friends for years uh and then i also went to she's now deceased but she was a former executive uh and at, at bally's and, and a former professor at rutgers rodina gilliam mose and i gave them chapter three and i said call me when you're ready to talk uh and we'll talk about it so about Four or five days later, Radina calls me up and says, come on over. So I go over to Bally's and and she says, and she starts the conversation by saying, you do know you now have to write a second book. <laughs> I said, <laughs> okay, Radina. She said, this is, she, she said, this chapter's perfect, but, but there's a much bigger story here. I said, I know that, but I got to get the book done first. So she said, cool. M my friend, uh, Judge Jackson, uh, he, 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 no one sat in the, what do you, I, I don't know what the proper term t today is for the juvenile crime court. And mm -hmm. it's in the family. It's in, it's the, in family. the family. Yeah, family. But, 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 but no, 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 no judge in New Jersey sat in that court cons consecutive years longer than him. He did it for 16 years. Hmm. Uh, and so 
Jim really knows Atlantic City's history of the black community from up close. And when I met with him, Jim is a Jim is one of the wisest people I know and also, you know, gets right to the point. And we're sitting in sitting in a restaurant and he puts his thumb down on the table and he said, You put your thumb right on it, Nelson. Finish your book. Excellent. <laughs> so when I so when I had the endorsement of those two people who who, who you know were born and raised in the North Side, uh, both good friends of mine you know and i and i knew they would be honest with me too you know they they weren't going to blow smoke at me um then i knew how i can finish this book and i can remember going home saying to my wife i've I've got a book now she says what do you mean i said the the piece that's been missing is now ready and i can finish everything else and then it took me about took me about another mm, 10 12 months maybe a little more than a year to finish boardwalk empire and then that's a whole other story in terms of what I went through, you know, make, finding somebody to publish it and then going to L.A. and finding somebody interested in the film. You know, it's a, it was it was quite an adventure. <laughs> I'm sure it was a process and, and a learning process for sure. Yes. Learning process is a good way to. But see, all successful lawyers are learners. They should be ready to learn something new all the time. They should be striving to educate themselves all the time. I really do believe that then when a person stops learning, they might as well be dead. Mm-hmm. That's that's I mean, that is the truth. All successful lawyers are learners, um, and and that that just hits the nail on the head um, as to as to I guess why why you're so good at, at what you do. I wonder as you're telling as you're sharing with us the you know the the struggle so to speak in chapter three. Um, is am I correct that when you are researching and writing uh, in the way that you do a piece of a piece of history, um, you don't always know what your story is going to be? Oh, correct. But when I say oh, correct, mm-hmm. you, you 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 research one issue and that opens up other issues, mm-hmm. and you go down that you go down that you know that path so to speak and sometimes you run into a new path and sometimes you run into a dead end you say hmm i wasted my time on that so you never really know but you know you try to have a vision and and this is the same thing believe me this is the same thing with writing a brief and writing writing a judicial opinion you try to have a vision for okay what's all this going to look like when i'm done and you your outline you know may when i say evolve it may be amended who knows how many times uh, as you go forward but if you can if you, know, if you can write a good lead and that's what that's what i remember i did represent the atlantic city press for 20 years and so i worked with a lot of worked with a lot of really good writers the press press back in its prime had some damn good writers and you know chuck reynolds who was publisher former a former reporter uh he said nelson you gotta be gotta be able to write a lead and 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 distill everything down into a couple hundred words uh and it's sort of like shining a light you know forward sort of the reader knows where you're going and he said if you can do that then you're able to tell your story and so i knew that i had to be able to do that with all of the books that I wrote, and I knew that I had to be able to do that with every brief that I wrote, and with every with every you know judicial opinion I wrote. You have to let the reader know where you're going starting out, but because you got to know where the hell you're going when you're starting mm-hmm. out. 
Well, and as you said a few minutes ago, writing is really rewriting and being able to be disciplined. You know, you, you talk about getting up at 4.30 in the morning. I've heard other people who are very successful in their field, you know, talk about getting up early and, but being able to um, really kind of dive deep and revisit and challenge yourself as to maybe where you're going. Um, I would imagine that you don't necessarily, you're, you're, you, I would imagine that you write your lead in at the end, or if you write it at the beginning, you have to be prepared to modify it. You, yes, you have, you know, you have, you have to have some sort of lead starting out and be prepared to modify it. Mm -hmm. Now, my, I, I, I can tell you the first sentence of every book that I've written, because that's what you really struggle with too. Right. Okay. You want people the, the, to keep the, reading after the first page, right? <laughs> co correct. Correct. You want to grab them as quick as you can. And I have told people, you know, if I don't grab you by the, by the second page, then you know, my book's not for you. Uh, but you, you, what, what you, what you're trying to do is to let the l reader know that this is going to be an interesting story. This is where you're probably headed. And you want to you want to try to grab them, as, but you see you're trying to do that with a brief too. Well, and with an I mean, opening you, and closing argument. Right. When you make a preliminary when you make you know I, I call them preliminary statement. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when, and, but opening arguments fine by me. But mm -hmm. when when you make a preliminary statement, you should be able to distill the essence of your case. I think to under five hundred words. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean Albert Einstein. Uh, once, once said, if you can't explain it simply, then you don't understand it well enough. Right. And that's really the truth. Uh, I, you know, I've, I, I sat through many, many, many trials and I saw 45 minute, sometimes almost an hour minute for fender benders that were like, when is this guy ever going to sit down? You know, mm -hmm. his opening argument. And, you know, and then I saw in medical malpractice cases, 15 minute openings mm -hmm. and they did a much better job. And you could tell the lawyer who had thought everything through and you can tell the one that was sort of just floundering. Right. And it's the same same thing with writing. I, you know, no offense to anybody here because you know, mm -hmm. you're not going to hear any names, but. God, I read some really bad briefs. Right. right. What's, and, and what's the, the issue? What is the issue? here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, tell me what it is you want me to do. Right. <laughs> to, to tell me why you're entitled to relief. Mm -hmm. I mean, get right to it. Uh, I, I, I have just finished, and it's going to be it's going to be published next year. The bar association reached out to me and asked me to write a book on writing, uh, and I have done that. Uh, and the, and the working title, which I think we're going to stay with, uh, is style and persuasion: a handbook for lawyers. Uh, and I'd really like the bar association is terrific to, to, you know, to work with. Uh, That's outstanding. I didn't realize that. I'm excited to read that. But it's also yeah, about make, not being not sounding too much like a lawyer either. Right. In in the type of writing that you do. I mean, was it difficult well, to not slip into legalese? Uh, the, the the answer is I'm trying to teach lawyers how to communicate effectively. And for me, Effective communication is less is more. The, the fewer words the, I, you heard me say, and I, and I believe this is, you write with a word budget. You, you, you should look at this project 
and how many words do I need to express myself? And then if your first draft is, you know, a thousand words extra, you have to figure out how to, how to squeeze them out. My, my word budget for this book on hand on legal writing was 50,000 words. The first draft was close to 70,000 words. That's my problem. I got to figure out how to squeeze them out. Mm-hmm. And when I used to write judicial opinions, it was rare that I would, you know, that I would write something that was more than 5,000 words. And I usually kept it under 5,000. That was the more complicated, obviously, you got more bases to touch. But it's the same thing with writing briefs and writing letters and writing emails. You should decide up front, how many words do I need to express myself? And then stick to that word budget. Uh, and it's it's it, it it if you develop the right if you develop that mindset it gets easier over time and some people I've talked I talk to young lawyers all the time I'm involved in the ends of court uh, and you know I try to impress upon them less is more but to get to less you have to think through the issues and boil them down to their essence uh, and that and that takes work mm-hmm. you know, and and it takes it takes rewriting. Writing is rewriting. Yes. But the more you do it, the easier it gets, believe me. Right. Every now and then you run run into an issue that's very difficult. Well, <laughs> I'm trying to help. I'm trying to help somebody with something that a presentation that they're getting ready to make, which is like the biggest thing in their life. And they're a friend of my wife's and a friend of mine. And I'm trying to help them. And I've already said, you know, you're way too wordy on your presentation. <laughs> you need you need help. Uh, you have sometimes. to you have to know your listener. You have to be able to yes. keep attention and uh, speak in terms that 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 everyone is going to understand. Yes, um, all three of those things you just said is true. I say it this way: uh, Chuck Reynolds, who was publisher of the press, was friendly with him, and he used to say, "Rule number one in all communications is know your audience. Mm-hmm. Who am I writing for? Who am I speaking for? What is it that I want them to take away from what I have to say?" Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rule number one is know your audience. Yeah. Who do you think your audience is in your books, or does has it does it depend? Because well, I, and the I, reason yeah. I asked that is I think that you you know Boardwalk Empire, Boardwalk Empire, the North Side, Dara's Nightmare, what a what a service to just the community to to be able to have spent the amount of time and energy and research to really distill you know an important part of history Um, and then to be able to tell the story accurately factually accurate um, having left no stone unturned um, and to be able to have a have a um, have it presented to such a broad audience I mean um, there's so many people that I know that read Boardwalk Empire non-lawyers right non non non-historians and you think about how so many people in our whole country uh, enjoyed the miniseries that came as a result of that. So it, it's, it's, and, but that's because of just what you said a couple minutes ago. You know, you, you thought about the way you were going to communicate that let your audience be broad, right? Did you think about that going into it? I wanted, I wanted my audience to be broad. I want my audience to be broad on everything that I write. Um, the book on legal writing is, is for lawyers, obviously, mm-hmm. but but the the other books I want them I want my audience to be broad, 
but I also have a sub-audience that I'm counting on being there for me, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the first three books were you know, clearly people interested in local and New Jersey history. Dar- the Darrow book, I, I, I'm, again, the feedback I'm getting is that I'm reaching a, a broad audience, but I also know that you know, handled correctly, this could, you know, I've already, I've spoken before a few bar groups already, and I, I know I'm going to be speaking before more. COVID messed up a lot of schedules. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I'm getting at is, yes, I try to write for everybody. Uh, and the sub, for Darrow, it's clearly lawyers is, is my is my subgroup, so to speak. Uh, but, uh, that, you know, Darrow is doing what I want it to do, and I think it's going to go places that I hope it goes. I think it will. I think it will. Are you? Are you? And I'm not going to ask you to to get into any specifics, but are you currently researching and writing uh, as, as we speak? I'm working on another book. Yeah, okay. I just okay. came back. I'm working on another book, and this is it's a very different book with a very different audience. Uh, I can't wait to. I can't wait to to read it. Yeah. I, it, 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 I won't go, we're not going to go into it because it gets Yeah, no, I don't, pretty, I, I, wanna, I don't want you to. I don't want you to. I was just curious if you were, in fact, uh, working. It sounds like it sounds like you are. And uh, I, I think always, that... always have and always have something that interests me. And I always have something I'm, I'm, I'm working, doing serious research towards another book. And I have another book in mind after that. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll be writing for a while <laughs> for the, for our local list, for our local listeners. Uh, can you, can you recommend, uh, a good local library if, if folks want to maybe, uh, check out some local libraries that you think are, um, are well, the, maybe well, not the Atlantic, good? the Atlantic city free public library is excellent. I kid you not. Okay. And, 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 and if they're interested in local history, then within that library is, is a room called the Heston Room. And that's where you find primary resources like, like you know, reports of interviews and, and manuscripts and doctoral dissertations and things uh, and transcripts. The, the Heston Room is, is, is a real resource if anybody's interested in, in local history. Uh, Atlanta County Library System itself is pretty damn good. Okay, uh, good. Uh, that you know, I, I would. I, I, there's a branch in there's a there's a there's a branch in Harbor Township. There's a branch in Mays Landing. There's a branch in Hamilton. I think there's a branch in Galloway. Uh, in other words, uh, I mean, some very good libraries. And again, librarians are good people. They 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 know that you're coming in looking for information, and their goal is to help you find it. Good advice. And uh, I'll just conclude again. I'm going to reiterate what you said a couple minutes ago. All successful lawyers are learners, and um, you know, judge you. You help all of your readers uh, continue to learn. So thank you. That's my goal, Meg. Very nice talking to you. This podcast is not a source of legal advice. No two legal cases are the same. Contact an attorney if you require legal assistance. The best way to follow, subscribe, rate, or message the show is to visit njcriminalpodcast.com. Deans listen to the challenges, solutions, strategies, and opportunities related to legal podcasts. Podcasting is a powerful sales tool with digital marketing benefits. 
If you're interested in law firm podcasting, simply dial 239-351-5575 and ask for Tom. That's 239-351-5575. Or go to lawfirmpodcasts.com to schedule a call.